0: I love that you're watching Transforming Truth. We're in a series called Ignited, and uh, we're talking about reclaiming the revelation from the book of Acts and reintroducing it to the modern church and uh, moving forward in the power and the truth that we saw that was so effective in the first century church that, in my opinion, I think we've lost. So these messages have been an incredible blessing to prepare, to pray over, and to share. And I know you're going to be blessed by the message that's coming up. By the way, if you want to, visit us at transformingtruth.org. Find out a little bit more about who we are and what we're doing. And if the Lord leads, there's an opportunity there for you to get involved in helping us continue to advance the gospel through media. And all of that information is right there on the website. But for now, let's go ahead and get into the Word of God together. Acts 6 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Every message in this series so far, you can be seated. Every message in the series called Ignited, the series in the book of Acts, has contained an element of something supernatural, whether it be the outpouring of the Spirit, whether it be the ascension of Jesus in Acts 1, the outpouring of the Spirit, and the demonstration of the roaring wind and the tongues of fire in Acts chapter 2, whether it be the lame man being miraculously healed outside of the gate beautiful in chapter number 3, or then ongoingly the miracles that were being referred to, everything's supernatural. Um, Acts chapter 6, and the verses we read, contain almost nothing that would even hint of being supernatural. And I love that because one of the things that we need to remember as a local congregation, that affirms the active works and gifts of the Holy Spirit, we also need to remember that we can't get lost up in the clouds that every now and then you have to put some shoe leather on your faith and you have to walk it out practically. So there's this word that some of us don't particularly care for. It's this word administration. Administration. Um, It isn't my favorite part of ministry if I'm being honest, but I'm going to tell you, I have learned over 20 years of vocational ministry the high value of proper administration in the church. And as this local assembly is growing and people are being added, and we are not a cookie cutter congregation, and so right now as you look around the room, you're going to notice people of different ages People of different temperaments, you could see that during worship. Some quiet and reserved, honoring the Lord privately in their heart. Others rambunctious almost, playful and rejoicing, coming into the kingdom as little children that want to celebrate the glorious Father. Then we have different races and we have different nationalities and we, we have different expectations. And so everybody participates in the body life of New Bridge coming in with a prefabricated set of expectations. And that can be beautiful if we all lay those expectations down in submission unto the Lord. But the reality is for leadership, and this passage has a lot to do with leadership, leadership has to think, how do we keep such a diverse group moving together forward as one? And it's impossible to do without administration. Uh, Dustin mentioned it earlier in the announcements. We're coming up on the one-year anniversary of New Bridge. And in that first year, yeah, we got three people that are really excited about that over here. So in the in the sure, go ahead. I mean, it is a glorious thing. Two churches coming together, jettisoning our denominational loyalty, saying we're gonna be people of the word and people of the spirit, and coming together to form a new assembly called Newbridge Church. And it's just just slightly shy of a year ago. And in that first year, your two pastors and other leaders working together said we're going to do whatever it takes to move forward. And it has been the most fulfilling year of ministry I've ever had in 20-plus years, but it has also been the hardest. And as we move forward, Dustin and I, along with the elders and other key influencers and leaders in this body of believers, we've recognized that the way we did it for the past year in leadership has to be tweaked and made sure that we are able to progress moving forward. And so in this message today, I'm going to share with you a little bit about what that's going to look like. And it's going to affect you, it's going to affect your leadership team, and it's going to affect our community if we can all recognize the biblical validity of this And we can all give our hearts and our hands to it. So let's get to the text this morning and the message that I've called clarity from conflict. Look with me in verse number one, and we're going to see there what a kingdom challenge looks like. This is very simple. I'm not going to linger long here. There's a beautiful harvest that was taking place among the church. A beautiful harvest was among them. You see that at the beginning of verse one where it says, "...in those days the disciples were increasing in number." The power of the Holy Spirit was coming. The unity of the Holy Spirit was evident to all. Persecution was beginning to show itself. And so the Christians that were actually part of the church were really had, they really had buy-in. They weren't flaky. They weren't on the fringe. They weren't uh, straddling the fence. They knew that there was a price that it was going to cost in order to be uh, an active part of the way, the followers of Jesus. And so the body was strong, and because of that, they were serving, they were sacrificing, they were meeting together in homes, they were coming together in, in regular times of worship, and they were praying, and the Holy Spirit was pleased to do so much through this growing number. Some estimate by this time, when we come to Acts chapter number 6, there could have been as many as 15,000 to 20,000 Christians right there in Jerusalem. And so whether it was the 8,000 that we know about or whether it was 15 to 20, we know that there were tons of people that were coming to Christ and they were in a season of harvest. It was a beautiful thing. But, But this is what the enemy does. When the enemy sees the kingdom of God advancing, he summons all of the forces of hell and he commands them and he signs them a territory and signs them jurisdiction and equips them with strategy and empowers them with tactics. And so all of hell was coming against the church. Uh, The first attempt was that persecution. And so the religious leaders were coming against the church, and they were learning as a community of followers of Jesus, they were learning there's going to be a cost associated. But then the enemy moved within the church, and that's in chapter number 5. And you see deception from persecution to deception. We didn't even cover this passage. Uh, You can thank me later for not covering it. What am I talking about? I'm talking about Ananias and Sapphira. They came to, de- to deceive the Holy Spirit and they were doing it in the context of what they were offering. They were pretending to offer their all unto the Lord and Peter got a word of knowledge and he said to Ananias and Sapphira separately that they've lied against the Holy Ghost and judgment was brought against them. And uh, the Bible says that everybody feared. They feared God. And so persecution didn't work from Satan. Deception didn't work. But now here we have the long-standing element that Satan continues to rear up in churches even to this very day. What is it? Division. Division It's his favorite weapon to bring against any local assembly. What did it look like? Look in verse number one at the end of it. Here was a disabling disturbance among them. A complaint by the Hellenist. I'll tell you who they are in a moment. A complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution what we have here is an undetailed reality that existed in Jewish culture and, and just kind of went seamlessly into the church. There were no government programs that would take care of the afflicted, the sick, and the, the, the discarded, the widowed, the orphan. Government programs weren't in existence in that time in the Roman Empire. So it was always um, a, a, a route going through people of faith. It was through mercy, it was through through compassion, it was through sacrifice and generosity that the weaker among them were taken care of. And of course that was commanded by God to the Hebrew people. And as these Christians were Hebrews who had come to know Yeshua, the Messiah. And now they are saying, well, there's no reason to jettison that. We'll incorporate that. And so they were taking care as part of their normal body life together, these widows. But notice the widows are divided into two groups that are mentioned here. You have the Hebrews and those were the Jewish widows. That would have lived their whole life in Palestine. They're probably close to Jerusalem. And then you have what's called the Hellenist. And these were Jewish people who had been scattered out through the area, and they had primarily adopted as their language the Greek language. Hence the reference to Helen, a Greek kind of uh, parallel there. And so they were called the Hellenists because they didn't speak the language. There would have been slight cultural differences, but now they had moved back in either their widowhood or in their old age back to Jerusalem, and they sensed a very valid issue. They were being neglected. They weren't being treated the same way as the Hebrew, the Aramaic-speaking uh, widows. And over time, this one complaint to one became one complaint to five and five to ten and ten to twenty until word gets back to the disciples that, hey, the widows, the Hellenist widows, the Greek-speaking widows are feeling neglected and there's some complaining going on. Now, friends, it sounds benign, doesn't it? Well, it doesn't if you've ever been in church leadership. Because what begins is a valid complaint, and I want to just say, the Scripture doesn't say they were making it up. seems like a valid complaint, that they were seeing some preferential treatment going on. They were seeing some kind of prejudice against them, because probably of their language and their affiliation with more of a Greek culture, and the Jewish disciples weren't giving them the attention that they were giving to the Aramaic-speaking widows. And so the complaint arose, and it was significant enough to where the 12 had to call together all of the disciples and say, we have a problem, Houston. We need to take care of some business. And so that's where we merge into verse number 2. Now, this is where we want to become learners. This is where we want to become deep-thinking, slowed-down students of the example set before us by both the leaders and the church here in Acts chapter number 6. Here is what cooperation in conflict looks like. Let's take notice of what we read here in verse number two. First of all, there was a conflict of priorities here. The Bible says that the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That sounds like a preacher, doesn't it? That sounds like something a preacher would say, but let me give you the reality behind this. And this is where we will slow down a little bit because I not only want to give you what is in the text, I want to make application to the 21st century church and in particular to Newbridge Church because this is important as we move on. Here we have that old synopsis of people in the body, and it was a growing body. I mean, they had 12 primary leaders, that were, in, in effect, administrating or responsible for thousands of Christians and all of them fairly new Christians. And so the, the apostles, the 12 disciples, whatever you want to call them, they were given the jurisdiction of leading, tending, taking care of, of all of these people. And so in the middle of it, there's this issue with, hey, our needs aren't being met. It came from a group of women that had no advocate, these Hellenistic Jews that, that, that had no advocate. They were widows. And they're saying, nobody's meeting our needs. Nobody's meeting our needs. And that was the expectation in the church. And so all of a sudden, the spotlight goes on the 12 because, bless God, they're the need meters. They're the ones expected to make things happen. And so from a leadership standpoint, let me give you a little bit about how that feels like. There's a problem in the church and in the midst of you juggling this ball, and this, and this one, and this one, and this one, and this one, and you've got nine balls going in the air, somebody throws a bowling ball in that thing, and boom, everything falls to the ground. So you got to stop, you got to think, you got to make some decisions, and you got to get moving again. We have a conflict of priorities. This was the summary statement by the 12 who knew their calling. They knew their commission, and they understood equally that this was a valid need in the church that needed to be met. And so I'm learning as a leader what they did, and those of you that are leaders with me, I want you to do the same, but I also want you that are not leaders, that are, let's just say, followers in one sense of another, to recognize that it is teamwork here. They said this, it's not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God. Literally, that's a Greek term where we read in the ESV, not right. It just means it's unacceptable. It's not the right thing to do. These were not lazy men. These were men who would give their lives for the gospel. So we know they're sold out. We know that they have clear buy-in. This is not some, some cush job that they have. Their lives are on the line. But they recognize that it is unacceptable before the Lord for them to give up the one thing that they're supposed to do in order to do the thing that needs to be done in the moment. And so the Bible makes this distinction that there are in the church leaders whose ultimate an almost singular focus needs to be to the written Word of God, the studying of it, the proclamation of it, and being able to teach it and impart it to others. Now, the problem is this. That doesn't help the widows that were being neglected. Okay, pastor, I understand uh, it's credible that you, you need to give yourself to the, to the Word of God. You, you men in Acts 6, y'all are apostles, and we understand we don't expect you to go to the market. We don't expect you to buy the food. We don't expect you to bring it to our house. We don't expect you to do it, but we still need help. So you've got this issue between the urgent and then that which is more fully, fully um, of the responsibility, the high call, of the elders. I'm going to give you a quote from one of our elders. It'll be up on the screen. Several weeks ago, we were in a group praying. We're praying about these very things. How do we better administrate and serve this body of believers as a leadership team? And as uh, Larry Bowker was praying, this came out of his mouth. The most urgent thing is not always the most important thing. The most urgent thing is not always the most important thing. Sometimes we as leaders." we'll let the most urgent thing top our list and it becomes the most important thing. And let me tell you the strategy of the enemy in this. He just keeps putting urgent things in front of the leader. More urgency, more urgency, more urgency so as to keep that leader from doing what God has given him as the most important thing. And that was the danger that was going on here in the early church in Acts chapter number six. So what are they gonna do? Well, look with me in verse number three. I love this about the leaders. I'm so instructed in my soul. They took action. There was decisiveness toward a solution here in verse 3. Therefore, brothers, because we can't leave the Word of God to serve tables, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty. Leaders, listen to me on this. They heard the complaint, and leaders, listen. Listen. We're like the rest of you, we, we, we don't like complaints and we don't like incessant complaints, but this was a valid issue. And so I love the fact that the leaders just didn't ignore it. I love the fact that they didn't retaliate and tell those widows to sit down and shut up. I, I love the fact that they didn't get in a group and just complain about them and uh, say, well, God's sovereign and I'm sure he'll take care of his own. But these guys got together and they called all of the disciples together, which would have included some of those widows. And brought them together. And this is what the leaders had said. We're not even told here that there was a word of knowledge. There was no prophetic download. It's not overly sensationalized. These are our apostles using their God-given faculties and saying, we have an issue here. We don't need to spend six months and develop ten committees to get it done. We're not going to stop the whole train so that we validate every single nuance of this need. Let's just take care of business. And that's what, what, what leaders are, are meant to do. Leaders sometimes can't stop. They have to move. They have to make decisions as they go because they've got five other decisions that are stacked up behind it. They can't always sit down, have a meeting, do a, do a, a dissertation, a paper, and, and, and sit down with nine committees to make sure everybody feels good about it. Y'all are laughing because y'all have been in some churches like that before. You're not in one now, but you've been in some churches like that before. And so what did they do? they I love what they did. They, they acted decisively. Somebody led the group of apostles in a consensus and said, here's what we do. I think we can handle this. We know the numbers. Remember, in the early church, there was actually a list of widows that was kept. We learned that from the Pauline epistles, that widows were actually on a list. There was actually a criteria that had to be met for a widow, her age and her attitude and, and what she was doing as far as serving and praying and all of that. They had to meet the criteria in order to be taken care of. And so once that is met, the widows were always taken care of. And we find here that whatever that number was, the apostles said, I believe if we have seven men, they can oversee this. Now, a lot of people will make Acts chapter 6 the, the kind of the organic passage for deacons. I'm not doing that this morning. All I know is that these men were raised up, and two of them ended up going on to become very significant people in the book of Acts that we'll talk about later. That's um, Stephen and Philip. But notice what these men needed to be kind of cloaked in. They had to have spiritual integrity. Pick out men that have good reputation, of good repute. They had to have spiritual intensity. They need to be full of the Spirit. That means their normal pattern of life has to be in in, in, um, communion with the Lord. Nobody had to ask them if they spoke in tongues and things like that. Listen, when you walk in the Spirit, you don't have to wear a badge. It just comes off of your life, and it has less to do with tongues and much more to do with character. And so here we have these men, they needed to be full of the Spirit with integrity or intensity and and good repute with integrity, and they needed to have clarity. They needed to be men that were full of wisdom. Why? Because they were going to be entrusted with money to go to the market, to buy the goods, to take care. They had to be men that had wisdom to know how to, to, to minister to, women that were hurting and lonely. And so they needed men that could have these things, and they had to have spiritual humility too. Where is that found? Where it says that they're going to be appointed to this duty. It was going to be work. It wasn't going to be always signs and wonders and miracles and fire and wind and all of that. It was going to be going to the market, spending the money that you had been allotted to give, buying the food, taking the food, delivering it to each house every single day. That was their ministry. And listen... That's not glamorous. I mean, you know, Peter and John, they they were going to be, or Peter was going to be raising the dead. They were all going to be performing miracles. They were going to be preaching to large crowds. They were going to be in earthquakes and on the Mount of Transfiguration. But Philip and Stephen and Nicanor and Timon and and, and these others, they're going to be delivering food to the widow's houses. And so they had to have humility to say, I'm going to do what I do as unto the Lord, just as the apostles do what they do. Is under the Lord. Watch this, write this in your Bible. No competition. No competition. No comparing, no competing. The leaders acted decisively, they communicated clearly, and they established an executable process. Leaders make decisions. Now, friends, hear me on this. I think you know this, but um, let me just say it clearly. Leaders are making decisions all the time in churches, and this is the first season I've ever been in a ministry where I've experienced the level of trust and confidence from a body of believers. I Listen, I, I, I got a PhD in refereeing church squabbles years and years ago, and I, I know what it's like to be resisted on everything about where the piano sits, to what color of brochures we're going to put in the lobby, to really sillier stuff than that. I, I've been through that. We're not in that anymore. But as we move forward, I want you to know, decisions will be being made constantly. Most of the time, you'll never know about them, and they are intended to bless and to beautify this body, to help us as we move forward, to do better what we are currently doing. But the joy of it for a leader is that we, a matter of fact, it's actually commanded, commanded The reference is slipping me. I think it's in Hebrews chapter number 13 that literally tells those in the church body to follow their leaders so they may lead you with joy. It means don't fight, don't dig in your heels, don't complain, don't murmur, don't gossip, don't do those things. Why? Because it gums up the wheels, it slows down the work, and it tarnishes the name and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So as they were picking these men, notice in verse number 4, this is what cooperation and conflict looks like. There was a conflict of priorities, but there was a decisive uh, decisiveness towards solution. And then there's this clarifications of commitment. I love what the leaders did here. Verse number four, as you men are doing that, know this. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They needed to hear that. They needed to understand that these weren't 12 lazy apostles that were just sitting around with their sandals kicked up and, you know, eating couscous. These are men that were going to be doing something in the absence of delivering meals to the widows. Here's what we're going to do. It speaks of a level of accountability that the leaders gave to the people. So, in other words, if Peter and John and the others... Are going to be devoting themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The people had a couple of rightful expectations from their leaders. What would it be? One, that those leaders would be communicating solid wisdom that they would be in the presence of God, praying, receiving what the Lord was saying. And then they would have the ability to unpack the Old Testament, our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and unpack that. And they would teach, they would preach. And so what the people would say is, we need to free them up to do the thing that they're called to do. And we need to take ownership of the things that we can do. That is what a healthy church looks like. And I'm going to tell you, when those things are happening, glorious stuff takes place. Let me give you a couple of things by way of application. This will be up on the screen. A church's primary leaders must be freed up to accomplish the things which only they can accomplish. Being capable at other duties does not mean that they should be made available for other duties. Now, let me explain that. And I'm not even going to try to qualify this because I know that some of this could sound like, you know, well, y'all are just trying to get out of work. That's only said by people who have never known what it means to pray, study, and prepare the Word of God, to give it multiple times during a week. You see, here's the thought. You and I have something in common. We have 24 hours in every day. And you don't get 24 and a half. You don't get 25. You don't get 35. You get 24 of them somewhere between probably five to eight of those hours are going to be uh, spent sleeping and and replenishing for the next day. So let's knock it down to about 19 hours. And there in those 19 hours, it's, it's divided between what you have to do and what you get to do. Most of us have majority of have to and maybe a little bit of get to. But no matter who you are or where you are, you've got 24 hours in the day. And all of us, whether you're aware of it or not, all of us have an assignment from God. So our days are to be stewarded as unto the Lord in understanding and the the fulfillment of living out that call. Now listen, somebody say, well, what are you talking about, man? I'm raising little kids. I'm I'm, I'm cleaning house. I'm, I'm driving a bus. I'm working at an attorney's office. I'm doing this. Well, listen, your assignment is not primarily geographical. Your assignment is not so much about where you are. It's about who you are and what God wants to do with who you are. So if you're the mom at home with little kids, guess what your assignment is? That's your assignment. It's a glorious assignment. You'll make more of a difference in those children in those formative years than any preacher or pastor ever will. And whether you're at the office or whether you're digging a ditch or whether you're at home and you've got some, some of you are single and some of you are are, are indeed like these, they're widowed and you don't, you don't have an abundance of obligation. Time is your greatest resource. But when it all comes down to it, we still only have 24 hours. So you're going to have to decide sometimes, do I do this or do I do this? The church mindset is just try to grind as much out of the people as possible. You know, man, we just squeeze. It's the pastoral squeeze. Squeeze them out. And, you know, when you you can't squeeze anything out, throw it away and find a new person. Squeeze them out. And some of you have been in churches like that. Uh, You're not in one here. We want to honor the reality that you have a lot going on, but at the same time, we want to remain accountable to each other that in our 24 hours a day, we need to be freed up to the best of our ability to do the most important things, which are not the same, as Larry Bowker said, as the most urgent things. So it takes that wisdom. It takes that following the Holy Spirit. Um, I know what my calling is. Let me give some practical shoe leather. Are y'all with me this morning? Listen. okay. I know this isn't like rah-rah. I said, Jeff, get back to the wind and the fire and the cloven tongues of flame. And we'll we'll get back to all that stuff. This is in your Bible too, okay? Over the years, I know what expectation has created. And some of this is generational. Some, when you were in a smaller church or a less busy church, or you had a pastor with different skills, different than Pastor Dustin and myself, that pastor might have been with you for everything. I know pastors that have gone to the dentist with people just to sit there while they get a, a cavity filled. And listen, I don't have a problem with that necessarily, but, but when that happens in a church and then that person leaves that church and comes to Newbridge Church, and they call Jennifer or Jill and say, yeah, I've got to get a cavity filled. Will Dustin or Jeff be there? <laughs> and Jennifer Jill says, please hold. Click. <laughs> I'm being a little extreme there and exaggerating. That hasn't ever happened. But the expectation often, and because of what's happened in the church in the last 1,700 years, where we've moved away from the, the five-fold focus, and a pastor is supposed to be everything to everybody. He's supposed to move like an apostle. He's supposed to thunder like a prophet. He's supposed to win hundreds like the evangelists. And then he's going to disciple them like a teacher. And then he's going to pastor all of them as the consummate shepherd. One guy, by the way, he died like uh, six months into that job, because nobody can do that. But yet the mindset is, is if the pastor doesn't do this for me, then we have a problem. Well, we do have a problem, but the problem is, is that when Constantine began to be a quote-unquote friend of the church, the biblical blueprint was abandoned and a more secular ungodly blueprint was introduced over to the, into the church, which became the norm over years. And so now, the least mentioned officer in the New Testament, the word that is least often used is the word pastor, and yet it's the one that we always think of when we think of who leads the church. And so as we move forward, friends, this is one of the things that we are thrilled about, that we sense that God is doing. God is saying, I want my people to return to a biblical blueprint for how they do New Testament ministry. How we function together as a body of believers. So that we may recognize that there might be an apostolic mantle on this individual. There might be a prophetic mantle on this one. She might have a teaching mantle. He might have an evangelistic mantle. And then we need buku, uh, shepherds in this church. What are shepherds? We think of pastors as the ones with the title, the guy who preaches and we think of it that way. Take away the word pastor for a moment and retrain your mind to think shepherd. One who is with the sheep, one who is close. In your leadership, you will always have those that are called and equipped and a gift and gifted by God for flock focused ministry. And then in that same leadership team, you will have some that are much more uh, gifted by God for sheep-focused ministry. So you're going to have some that are ordained by God, equipped by God, called by God, and gifted by God to be as close to individual sheep as possible. And then you will have others that can't do that. Why? Because they've got to move the whole flock. And it is impossible to move a whole flock one individual sheep at a time. There has to be direction given And by the way, let me just clarify that. That is the primary calling and expectation that God has for Dustin and myself. We are to be flock-focused leaders. That means we provide the big picture. We provide direction. We influence those who will influence the sheep-focused leaders or the sheep-focused people. And so it is a teamwork, never a competition. Because if there's a breakdown anywhere, and here in this passage, what you had a breakdown of was sheep-focused leadership. That's why the Hellenist widows weren't getting taken care of. Nobody was close enough to them to know their needs. So what happened? It came back to the flock-focused apostles, and the apostles said, we can't get down on a sheep-to-sheep level. It's impossible because we have to provide the macro view of what God is doing and where the church is going. Y'all with me? So, they said, still in verse number 4, we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. I was instructed as I studied this out. I'm like to. i not a Greek scholar. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. We have some in our church, and I, I plagiarize them from time to time. But I do have some good Bible software, and the word translated devote when they say, We're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. It is a Greek word that indicates that they will steadfastly cleave and they will persist obstinately. Now, now let's flesh that out for a minute. The very word that the Holy Spirit uses, that the apostles say this is what He wants us to do, the very word that is used indicates the reality that there's going to be a temptation for them to be pulled away. And they said, nope, we're going to hold on tightly and that there's going to be expectation of the people for them to turn loose of the most important thing and give themselves to the most urgent thing. And they said, nope, we're going to persist obstinately. That means at times, although in our day of the me, me, me society that has begun to invade, not begun to invade, it has invaded the church, where we are such self-focused people, there will be in some at times a presumption that if that man up there who says he's the pastor isn't meeting my needs, then he's not doing his job. Come down from there and meet my needs. And you just can't support that scripturally. However, nor can that pastor say, hey, I'm preaching and I'm praying. That's my job. Hope you make it. No, because we're going to talk about that in just a second. So let's go further into this text and let's go down into the last handful of verses that we've gotten. This is what a redemptive resolution looks like. So, all we've had up to this point is a conflict and a plan, but in order for the plan to become a reality, it has to be embraced. And watch what the church and the leaders do. This is beautiful. This is how I want us to operate here at Newbridge. Here's what a redemptive resolution looks like. First of all, empowerment and release. Verse 5. What the apostles said pleased the whole gathering. That's referring to pick out seven men. And the people, they chose... Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Niconor, Timon, and Parmenus and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. Okay, just very quickly here. The leaders empowered the followers to be a part of the process and to help with the plan. And what is just genius about this is that literally the apostles had said to them a couple of verses earlier, okay, we validate that we have an issue here, We're not going to be able to meet that issue permanently, but here's the plan. We're going to to empower you and authorize you. Find seven men that you trust. Here's what's interesting. All seven of those men have Greek names. Where was the problem arising from? From the Hellenist Christian widows who were um, having a little bit of trust issues with a primarily Aramaic Hebrew uh, leaders that weren't meeting their needs and so it was just genius the seven men chose and immediately have an identifying connection with these people and so these seven more than likely Hellenist Jews were brought these seven men they're brought to the apostles and in essence this is what it said here are the men that we've picked so the leaders recognized the problem came up with a plan but didn't sit in a room and come back and dictate the plan they empowered the people he so said, we validate what's going on. You know better the needs than we do. Here's the plan, but we're going to let you pick who you feel will bo- best meet these needs. And so on the receiving end of that, the people felt validated. They recognized we've been heard, that we've not been brushed aside, that these aren't big CEOs sitting in an office over there smoking cigars and drinking whatever, and <laughs> got in trouble there for a minute, but you know, doing whatever they're doing, just kind of blowing us off, but they welcomed them into the part of the process. And so the people said, okay, they, they care. Not only do they care, and this is what's also genius. The leaders didn't establish of the, the, the pattern of, you bring me your problems and we'll solve it all for you. you. You just keep, every time you have a problem, you come to us and we'll solve it for you. The leaders said, you guys are also indwelt by God. You guys also have the Holy Spirit. You are also redeemed. You're also part of this family. And so we'll lay a broad sketch, but we want you to solve it. And so what are the followers learning? The followers are learning that they're not being dictated to. They're not puppets on some leader's strings, but they're actually part of the process. It's what a healthy church looks like. I do believe it's the leader's responsibility to provide general direction, sometimes very specific that is our calling. That can only be gained through studying the word of God and prolonged soaking seasons in prayer. You cannot get that any other way. And we're at a state now here at Newbridge where all that God gave us 15 months ago when all of this began and then 11 months ago when we formalized as a church, that all came through intense, focused prayer, study, soaking before the Lord for even years before Dustin and I knew each other. We're calling out to God on this. But now for a a fast-paced season of go, go, go. Hasn't it been exhausting at times here at Newbridge? I mean, it's been good, but have, have we not worked hard to get where we are? We have. But now, the fumes of that first stage of the vision have evaporated. It is now time for Dustin and I and other key leaders to get into the presence of the Lord and say, Abba, what would you have next? How do we do this? So on a very practical level, I've made personal changes to my schedule. Um, You won't, unless your time is like that close to you going home to be with the Lord, you won't see me in the hospital. Don't be offended. Don't don't be upset. Some have gotten upset over the last year because they're used to the pastor being there all the time. Listen, I'm not omnipresent. My son is, but I'm not. I mean, he's everywhere, but I'm not omnipresent. So I I can't be with this priority and at the same time be at a different priority. But we're raising up people who will be there, and that is the ultimate goal. Not that your favorite superstar pastor, whoever he or she may be in the world today, is there by your side, but that the people of God are ministering one to another, and that as a body we are showing care, consideration, and compassion to one another in our times in sickness and need. Dustin and I have uh, submitted to the elders that we're not going to be devoting our time for counseling anymore. Uh, counseling eats up the bandwidth and, and it leaves the leader dry. And we have people in the church and outside of the church that we're affiliated with that we are we are saying, this is the one who can help you. These are the counselors that can help you because a lot of counseling takes long-term uh, investment. And, and Dustin, and I can't do that anymore. Um, don't be upset, but you probably won't see me working on the on the on the building and grounds you don't really want me anywhere near your tools anyway (laughs) you know it's a bad scene but but frankly being able to do something doesn't mean you should be available to do it because every time you say yes to something you're saying no to many other things so part of why i'm sharing all of this is i want the body to be informed that we have enough confidence in the people of Newbridge to say to you, you are well able to sustain the the, the bulk of the work here in this assembly we are able to grow we are able to reach people we are able to release people we are able to help you recognize the gifting that god has already given you that may not have been um uh, unpacked in other churches some of you have powerful gifting of god but you've been in ministries and in churches where the pastors love to do everything and your job was to sit show up pay the price when the plates are passed and watch the big guy do something that's not new testament christianity And so we believe in you. We believe that there is gifting inside of you that your two pastors do not have. That God has withheld from us what he has given to you. And so our job in this upcoming season and and our, our broader elder team and other leaders in the church is to help us all to move forward in the primary gifting and calling that God has for us. That doesn't mean that an occasion, uh, the, the occasion uh, won't arise where we operate outside of our gifting or calling when an urgent need does present itself. It's just not going to be the norm. And so what, what we're asking, in one sense, I'm telling you what's going to happen. In another sense, in, 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 in asking God to bring humility into this, is we need your support in this. Biblically speaking, we don't need permission, but relationally speaking, we, we long for your support. We want to do this for you. We believe as we operate in our primary duties and callings that from that, God will then take work that we have been doing for a year. He will impart it to others who will actually do a better job of it because it will be their singular focus. So getting down into here, I don't even know where I am. I'm almost done. That's probably good news. Empowerment and release was verse number five. Trust and respect. I've kind of already touched on this. These... Seven men they set before the apostles. So the people brought their seven men. They set them before the apostles. The apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. So it was, it was a formalized moment. The apostles in that moment validated the choice of the people. They didn't micromanage. They didn't pick it apart. They gave the people the benefit of the doubt. There's nothing said of an interrogation, an examination. They literally trusted the people Who at a grassroots level had a better understanding of what the need was, and the leaders said they know more about it than we do. If this this is their pick, then we're going to honor that. Bring those seven men forward, and the apostles did something that would have meant something significant to those seven men. Each of the twelve laid their hands on those men, and they they commissioned them to the work that God had given them. I believe in that. I'm I'm not a big formal uh, liturgical guy. But I do believe there are significant moments when the hand of God is on somebody and a church body has recognized that that those, those men and women have been raised up, that it is entirely appropriate for us to stop everything, take a moment on a Sunday, whenever it is, and say, we see the hand of God on you for this work as your leaders. We validate this. We expect God to bless it. And we trust you and we release you. And those are powerful. We'll be doing that with Casey, Christopher, Greg, and Walker here sometime in late spring or early summer. What are we doing? We're saying, we've watched, we've seen, the people have recognized God's hand is on you. Now go do the work. And friends, listen, we've got to destroy the clergy laity lie. We are the body of Christ. We have different roles. Yes, there's authority in the church but my friends, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter number 12 that the Holy Spirit intentionally gives what gifts He gives to people. And then He uses those people in many different ways, a diversity of ways for different purposes at different times. So the thing is incredibly complex. We don't need to make it more complicated. We need to recognize that God is wise and when we see His hand on somebody's life, release them. Let them do the work that God has raised them up to do in the kingdom. And so in verse number six, both the leaders and the followers respected each other, and they displayed mutual trust in their particular roles. Hashtag honor. Honor. This is the church that God blesses. Qualified leadership, biblically qualified leadership, that believe in the people, that equip and eventually release those people into work. That's the leadership side. From the fellowship side, they trust the leaders. They don't understand everything. They've got different ideas about how they would do things, but they recognize that these leaders have a role to do, so they honor that. By the way, you don't have to agree with everybody to honor them. Uh, I'll just be honest with you. I don't agree with everything that the president in the Oval Office does, says, and believes, but I will honor him. And I did so with our former president. I disagreed with him on a lot of things, but I will honor that. Why? Because God honors honor. And when the mark of God, when you you want the mark of God on your life, I'm going to tell you something, you will be a person of honor or you'll be waiting for the mark of God on your life for a long time. We have to honor honor one another. And in this little microcosm, this little um, example we have in chapter number six, the leaders honored the followers and the followers brought their decision, laid it before the apostles. And so you have mutual respect, mutual honor. Again, no competition. When when leaders and followers refuse to compete in a church, it is a beautiful garden that's going to produce some good fruit. When competition and murmuring and complaining becomes the atmosphere. And I don't believe we're in a season like that, but I have been through long seasons of that. And there was no fruit. Let me tell you what God does. Help me, Jesus. Let me say this the right way. Whether it be leaders or followers, where there is an unbiblical attitude from the follower to the leader or the leader to the follower, let me tell you what God does. God will establish one and remove the other. That's just the way he does it. If I, as a leader, will honor the Lord and honor people, God will establish me. But if I choose not to do that, and if I choose to operate in seasons of selfishness or blindedness or arrogance or self-will, then I'm no longer qualified to lead and God will move me and bring in a leader that will honor the people that are still there same way with fellowship I've seen this friends and I I, I want to say this with as transparent of a heart as possible I have watched God take some of the most difficult people in my life in ministry as I refuse to match them carnality for carnality uh, punch for punch slice for slice and it's hard to do sometimes because I'm a bulldog not necessarily UGA but I'm a bulldog I am I, I I don't mind fighting. My nature is that I, you know, I, I'm just a fighter. But I had to learn. It took me years to learn this. I never won when I fought in the flesh. I never won. Oh, I, I may have gone home feeling like I won the argument. But for me, winning is honoring Jesus and pleasing him. And I never did that when I fought in the flesh. But when I came to that th- threshold and I said, I will not fight God's people anymore. I will do what I am supposed to do. I will love them and honor them. And they still fought me. I promise you this. I just patiently watched Amy right by my side. At times, her being more strong than me. Just saying, Jeff, keep praying. God will do what God will do. And we just watch God move it away. Now, friends, it's painful because it's relational. But the end result is this. I'm going to honor the Lord. And I can't honor the Lord if I don't honor His people. Even when they're... Bugging me. (laughs) Last thing, okay? I know this is a little bit of a murky message, but I'm pastoring this morning more than anything. Look at the result, and for us bottom line people, that's what it's all about. Jeff, get to verse number seven. What happened? Okay. On the back end of this plan being employed, the word of God continued to increase. Good thing or bad thing? Good thing. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Good thing or bad thing? good thing. And then a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Listen, some of the bad guys got saved. Say, Jeff, you ought not say that. Well, this is they're out of that same group that, that rallied the people to scream, crucify him, crucify him. And here we are sometime later and the, the, the Holy Spirit working through the church. And now some of these priests are saying, Yeshua is the Messiah. The, the early message of the church was primarily that, that Jesus is alive, Jesus is risen. And, and, and they would have been convicted, and that some of this would have been by watching these Christians and how they operated together. So, as we've walked through this, everybody recognizing their role, everybody sensing that they can't do everything, so they need to maximize. The most important things which may not be the most urgent things and that's hard for a lot of us uh, presumably capable people listen I, I just want to say this some of you live under the pressure that God called you to save the world and he didn't there's only one savior and his name's not Jeff it's not your name either his name is Jesus and he's the only one that's going to save all those that will be saved but some of you live like man I I can't even have a B minus day in the kingdom. I got to be an A plus. I got to hit it. I got every time I swing, it's got to be a home run. And you're living under that pressure and then you're spreading yourself so thin that you're not you're not making an impact anywhere to the degree that you could if you would focus your energies, giftings and abilities in a more singularized area. And that's what's going to happen here at this church. We're going to start working together to say, what is she born for? Let's listen to her. What does she believe? What does she believe that God has raised her up for times such as this? And let's listen to her. And then and when I say this, I'm talking about the body. It won't be me and Dustin interviewing everybody, but I'm talking about the body and corporately. And we're going to say, we've got to help her find a place. You know, what? here's a need that her gifts and her calling may match up perfectly with. And we're going to do the same thing across the board. Some of you are leaders who are in hibernation. You got wounded, you got hurt, you didn't get affirmed, you got sidelined, and you have let something talk you out of the reality that you're actually a player, you're important in the kingdom, you're a major player in the kingdom, but because of discouragement or deceit or wounding, you've now taken a back seat and you've begun to believe that's your reality. I call you out in the name of Jesus, and I say you are born for something better than watching others do the things that you are called and (laughs) equipped to do. When I say I call you out, I'm not calling you out. I'm saying, come on, get back into the game. So let me give you this. You can turn there if you want. It's familiar verses. I'm just going to read them. They won't be up on your screen, but Ephesians chapter 4, verses number 11 through 16. This is how God designed leadership and influence to bless the body of Christ and the church. Speaking of Jesus, it says in Ephesians 4.11, that He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, shepherds, if you will, and teachers to the church. Why did he do that? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. How long will that last, Jeff? until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Look up here for a second. The reason why I believe that there are still uh, still c- credible that apostles and prophets function in the church is because we're told how long they would be with the church. And what is that, what is that uh, description of how long they'd be there? Until we all, all Christians attain to the unity of the faith. You think we're there? To mature manhood. Is there a single Christian that would like to stand up and say, Jeff, uh, about six months ago, I arrived fully mature saint of God, promise you? No, that's silly. We, we know that. And, and if we did erroneously believe we had reached those levels, look at the next part, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Is the church as filled as Jesus is on a functional, practical level? Do we see that anywhere in the world today? No, we we are being sanctified. We are growing. We are walking out our salvation. And so, yes, we are not what we used to be, but we are not yet what we will be. Therefore, what God designed 2,000 years ago in a leadership structure for the church with apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, uh, teachers, and pastors, all of that is necessary if we're going to achieve it. Is it any wonder didn't intend to say this, but I'm going to. Is it any wonder That when we remove apostle, the apostolic mantle, and we remove the prophetic mantle out of the church, and there was a teaching that I was trained in that said, yeah, we don't need those anymore. We don't need those. Those were for the first century. You only had the original apostles. You only had those original prophets. They laid down the foundation of the church, and then they passed off the scene. Is it any wonder that we're not the church that we could be today when large segments of the church do not believe in two of the five offices that God ordained to be active in the church? And we're wondering, it's because we're expecting the pastor to be an apostle. We're expecting the pastor to be the evangelist. We're expecting the pastor to be a prophet. And a pastor is a pastor. Who are you yelling at, Jeff? Anybody that'll listen. <laughs> my point being is this it, this ought to free some of you up. I know it frees me up. Listen, man, I, I, I share my faith regularly but I'm not an evangelist. I do the work of an evangelist because it's commanded by Scripture, but there are people in the church, some of you don't need to do anything other than be a witness. I I remember hearing one time at a conference that that it was some zealous soul-winning thing And and it's all about soul winning, soul winning, soul winning. I'm great. Yeah, share your faith. And especially those of you that that's your passion. You need to be doing it all the time. And then some joker said this, and everybody you ever lead to the Lord, you need to spend a year with discipling that person. And I was like, what? That's torment to the evangelist. The evangelist has always got one foot out the door because he wants to get back out there. He's he's discipling this person over here, but he's thinking, man, I got to go, I got to go. And he's a horrible discipler for the most part. That's not what he's called to do. And then you force a teacher to stand on a street corner with tracks, and they're gifted in teaching, and they're supposed to walk up to Big Scary Joe on the street corner and tell him about Jesus. You know, they're going to have to change their drawers, man. I mean, they're just not happy. Why? Because that's not what God called them to do. And you put an apostle in an office and just tell him, read all day. That's all you gotta do. You you just gotta read all day. He's meant to go out and advance the kingdom and go to the unreached people and and to come up with creative, ingenious ways to be able to facilitate the gospel in his generation. And, And never muzzle a prophet. Never muzzle a prophet. I mean, a prophet doesn't want somebody else's sermon outline. Why? Because he or she has a fresh word from God, a rhema word, in that moment that needs to be spoken. So if you put a prophet in a classroom with a, a quarterly from the denominational publication, that prophet's going to light it on fire and use it as a kind of a symbol for whatever he or she's got in his heart. My, my, you, do you know what I'm saying here? My saying is this. If you're trying to be somebody else, then one of you is unnecessary. Be that woman, that man, that young person that God has called you to be, but be that person in the context of doing it with other Christians. You're not a lone ranger. You're not unaccountable. You're not a maverick who gets to strut around and she's just saying, I just get to be who I'm going to be because the pastor told me I get to be who I'm going to be. Listen, we're, we're, we're mutually accountable. So we do it together. That's where the humility, the cooperation. A quick word. I'm having a hard time stopping this morning, but I'm going to, I promise. A quick word to my evangelist friends. When I, when I was hired at Meadow Baptist Church in 1997, it was actually the summer of 1996, part-time, um, I came on as a minister of evangelism. And... I was, I was the guy who would stop the car on the side of 316, get out, put on my hazards, and talk to the dude thumbing a ride or holding a sign wanting food. And I'd just try to win him to Jesus. I'd get him in the car. I'd drive him to a hotel. I was just, that's all I wanted to do was win people, win people, win people. And that's a good thing, except it came with this. I judged those who didn't match my zeal. So if you didn't witness like I witnessed, and you didn't pass out as many gospel tracts as I did, and you didn't show up for Tuesday evangelism or Saturday visitation, then, <laughs> yeah, you might be in the kingdom, but just barely. It was a kind of arrogance that comes, if we're not careful, whether it's evangelism, prophetic gifting, intercessory ministry, whatever, if we're not careful, we will use ourselves as the standard measure by which we measure others. And listen, listen, that's a, a, a quick downward road road to a very hard humbling. So I will say this. You're not in competition with people that are gifted differently than you. You're not. Be blessed by them. I thank God for the zealous soul winners. You ever gone to lunch with somebody that's like a hardcore soul winner, and you're just there to eat tacos and and they're they're grinding out the gospel to the server, and you're just over there, you know, you're like, <laughs> playing with a salsa. I mean, you just let that person do their thing. Trust God with it. Evangelist, trust that the discipler does not have to go out on visitation with you in order to be really pleasing unto the Father. Uh Not every pastor is a preacher. My my former pastor would run circles around me as a pastor. And I say this lovingly. He he was not the greatest preacher. And I remember so often judging him in my heart as I sat there thinking, if he'd just get out of the way, I could go up there and I could do something. I I did. I I was I was twenty five years old, been saved a year and thought, man, he's in my way. What a punk. That's the Greek word, a punk. <laughs> and so w- w- what happens? Well, in my, in, in, in my young, immature thinking, I couldn't validate somebody's gifts because I didn't share them. And so what we need to do is obey what Paul said in, I think, 2 Corinthians 10, 12, or maybe 12, 12 10. He said, you compare yourselves with yourselves, and in doing so, you are unwise. So let's go ahead and repent. Let's go ahead and look each other in the eye and say, I thank God for you and your giftings. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't share it, but I validate it. I honor you and I want to come up next to you, my evangelist friend, my apostolic friend, my intercessory friend, my teaching friend, my my shepherding friend. I want to come up just against you shoulder to shoulder and can I help you and you help me and let's go out into a darkened, unbelieving lost Gwinnett County and let's share the gospel and those that are one, we've got a teacher here that'll teach them and we've got pastors here that'll shepherd them. We've got apostles here that will release them. We've got prophets here that when need to be will provide clear directions from the Lord for their lives. Can we not work together to do something that will make a huge difference in our culture?